0: Where did it all begin? Middle-earth? The languages? The books? The stories? The legends? Why did J.R.R. Tolkien imagine Middle-earth? What does it all mean? What is the meaning of life? Today we explore these questions of the soul as we journey through the Waldman letter, penned by J.R.R. R. Tolkien. Okay, to confess we may not get to the meaning of life, but who knows, we're wandering Middle-earth, and if we don't keep our feet, There's no knowing where we'll be swept off to, as Uncle Bilbo used to say. Before we get started, I want to share the following from a fellow wanderer, Newt907, who left a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. I stumbled upon this podcast in preparation for the Rings of Power series and What a Gem. I enjoy all the Lord of the Rings content, and as a big Hobbit and Lord of the Rings fan of both the books and movies, I appreciate Aaron's knowledge and ability to produce content in easy-to-digest, shorter segments, so that even those who are new to Middle-Earth can follow along. Worth a listen. Thank you, Newt907. I'm so glad you're enjoying the show. I'm glad you called out the shortness of the episodes, because making each episode 10-20 to minutes was a deliberate choice when I started this. Although, I do love me a good 45 minutes or hour exploring Middle-Earth, but I know that's not for all Middle-Earth wanderers. Published in some versions of The Silmarillion as a preface, the Waldman letter was written by J.R.R. Tolkien to Milton Waldman in 1951. Waldman was an editor and publisher in London. In 1951, after the success of The Hobbit years earlier, Waldman had shared some interest in publishing Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, while Tolkien wanted to publish The Silmarillion first. This letter seems to be a response to the idea of separating the two works. The Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, rather than trying to publish them as one great work which Tolkien wished to do. What I find really interesting about this letter is Tolkien articulating his own thoughts and interpretations of his work, even as it was still under construction in his own mind. It's a sort of meta view of the whole Lord of the Rings legendarium. But before Tolkien provides a summary of the three ages of Middle-earth and his argument on why they should all be interconnected, he first outlines his motivations and reasons for the work. So let's start with the first line, Quote, My dear Milton, you asked for a brief sketch of my stuff that is connected with my imaginary world. We begin to see here the touch of sarcastic humor that Tolkien deftly employs. He acknowledges that Waldman asked for a brief outline of his works. This letter clocks in at somewhere over 10,000 words, and is printed on 13 pages, which in my view is a venerable essay, or at the very least stretches the definition of the word brief. Secondly, I cannot get over the word choice that Tolkien uses to describe his work, stuff. He uses that word at least half a dozen times in this letter to describe his works, As the master of languages that he was, I find it hard to believe that his word choice would be anything less than deliberate and pointed. Now, I don't know the connotation that stuff had in Britain in the 1950s, but assuming it's similar to today, stuff seems like a boring, unassuming, unimaginative word to describe everything that Tolkien had been working on. Today, we use much more decorous words like legendarium, lore, or mythology. But again, I think this shows Tolkien's humility and humor. We'll see this more as we go on, but Tolkien knew he had produced something magnificent, so the word stuff is a pointed contrast with the last part of that opening line, my imaginary world. That ending of the first line also stands out to me for its concision. This world that Tolkien created is first a world of imagination. We'll dive deeper into this idea of an imaginary world in a few weeks, when we'll have a Tolkien scholar on the show, so stay tuned for that. Another interesting point from the first paragraph is Tolkien's genuine humility in interpreting his own works. Quote, The attempt to say a few words opens a floodgate of excitement. The egoist and the artist at once desires to say how the stuff has grown, what it is like and what he thinks he means or is trying to represent by it all. In the academic discipline of literary analysis, there are many schools of thought about how to look at and break down a text. Some methods involve looking at what the author says about the work and interpreting it outside in, while other methods involve dissecting the work itself as a near standalone thing and interpreting from the inside out. For myself, And longtime listeners of this show won't be surprised, I tend to fall more in the latter camp. I love breaking down a piece of work from the inside out, only turning to the outside sources once I've exhausted the work itself, even if that outside source is the author himself. As a tangent, it's for this reason that I don't believe some of the things that J.K. Rowling has said about her own works, simply because authors' minds change all the time, but a work stands on its own and is only slowly revised and changed. An author may make a claim about the work, but is there evidence of that claim in the work itself? But I digress. And you didn't come here for college-level English literature theories, so let's get back to Tolkien. Here, Tolkien at least acknowledges that there's some mystery to his works, that they are open to interpretation by other minds, not just his own. Here, Tolkien at least acknowledges that there's some mystery to his works, That they are open to interpretation by other minds, not just his own. He feels, therefore, no possessive ownership of his works. He gives them freely for others to examine. We can see Tolkien's humility further in the line where he says, In order of time, growth, and composition, this stuff began with me, though I do not suppose that this is of much interest to anyone but myself. Tolkien may have doubted that anyone besides himself would be interested in the origins of his imaginary world, but here we are, 70 years later, dissecting his words and trying to peer deeper into his imagination. Did he know what he was in the middle of creating? Did he know that his books would be translated into dozens of languages, selling hundreds of millions of copies, coming in as the second most best-selling book after the Bible during the 20th century? Of course we're interested in how this all started. Tolkien then outlines about four or five motivations for his work. The first is language. Tolkien explains that he made up imaginary languages as a child, and he never stopped. Therefore, quote, behind my stories is now a nexus of languages, mostly only structurally sketched. Now, most humans can handle only one language in their heads. Some, through hard work or circumstance, can learn a second language and speak both fluently. Very few humans can handle multiple languages with ease. I would say even fewer humans can handle multiple languages with ease and create entirely new and independent languages besides, and keep all of them straight and have them be full and complete. Tolkien was extremely rare and gifted in this regard, a gift that has, in Tolkien's words, quote, changed in taste, improved in theory and probably in craft. I want to put some context here. For those of you who enjoy Star Trek, of which I am one, a lot has been said about the Klingon language. Produced for the movie Star Trek The Motion Picture, the fictional language was created by three people, according to Wikipedia. Let me emphasize again, one language created by three people for a movie. This language has been much praised, and if you can speak Klingon, my hat goes off to you for being a bigger nerd than I am. Or rather, I should say, le suilan ma tolo anin naur, which means, I greet you, welcome, come near the fire, in Sindarin. What's Sindarin, you ask? Sindarin is one language, just one, an elvish language, precisely, that Tolkien invented. All told, Tolkien created 15 languages. Fifteen. Can you imagine? One man creating 15 languages. Compare that to three creating one language for a movie. I shake my head. I am so awed by the genius, skill, craft, and divinely given gift that Tolkien had. So when you have 15 imaginary languages swirling in your head, what's the natural thing to do? Start generating a history for them a broad historical context began to form in Tolkien's mind. It was only after his friend, C.S. Lewis, suggested that he started fleshing those historical sketches into a story that the Lord of the Rings came to fruition. And what did those languages and historical sketches result in in Tolkien's works? Quote, This gives a certain character, a cohesion, a consistency of linguistic style, and an illusion of historicity that is markedly lacking in other comparable things. Yes, I totally agree. It's that level of detail and background that makes Tolkien's world so believable. It provides a feeling of reality, of objectivity within Middle-Earth, that makes it seem like such a real place. This, if you remember from when we dissected Tolkien's essay on fairy stories a few episodes back, An inner consistency of reality is a critical element to making a reader enchanted with a story, rather than merely suspending our disbelief. So creating a story for invented languages was motivation number one. Motivation number two was to fill a void in the stories of his time, quote, but an equally basic passion of mine from the beginning was for myth, not allegory, and for fairy story, And above all for heroic legend on the brink of fairy tale and history, of which there is far too little in the world. This second motivation is likely what draws most of us into the Lord of the Rings, an attraction of myth, the lore of the hero's journey bordering on the stuff of legend, and the hope that we can find some shadow of ourselves in that hero's journey and be enchanted by it, so that we can return to the realities of our lives And strive to be victorious like the heroes of legend. But note Tolkien's insistence on not allegory, but rather myth. Allegory is art that can be interpreted to have a specific hidden meaning, usually moral. Pilgrim's Progress is a great example of that, or more modernly, The Chronicles of Narnia as allegory for Christian symbols. But before we dig too far on C.S. Lewis and his Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, let me share with you a quote from Lewis about the need for myth. Quote, "The value of the myth is that it takes all the things we know and restores them to the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. The child enjoys his cold meat, otherwise dull to him, by pretending it is a buffalo just killed with his own bow and arrow, and the child is wise. The real meat comes back to him more savory for having been dipped" In a story. By putting bread, gold, horse, apple, or the very roads into a myth, we do not retreat from reality, we rediscover it. I love that idea that the real meat of life comes back to us more savory because it has been dipped in a story. That is the value of myth. Tolkien will have more to say on allegory later on, but his second motivation of seeking to write a myth can be narrowed into his third motivation. I was from early days grieved by the poverty of my own beloved country. It had no stories of its own, bound up with its tongue and soil, not of the quality that I sought and found in legends of other lands. Tolkien then goes on to list out several other lands with myths, including the Greek, Roman, Finnish, and others, but nothing English. Now, before you get too far, Tolkien does mention the Arthurian legends, yet critiques them as being too allegorical and incoherent, and too explicitly tied to Christianity. The English myth that Tolkien sought could not be found. Myth and fairy story must, as all art, reflect and contain in solution elements of moral and religious truth, but not explicit, not in the known form of the primary real world, So Tolkien took it upon himself to bring into existence a distinctly English myth, one tied to the English, yet not allegorical nor morally didactic, but still containing pieces of moral truth. We've explored many of those truths on this show, but I just want to take a moment here and say for all Tolkien's humility in the first paragraphs of this letter, he was rather presumptive to set out to write a myth that rings with truth for the English people yet not as presumptive as we might think, as he decidedly left the door open, quote, for other minds and hands, to contribute to this distinctly English myth. We'll get to that right after this break. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. The next paragraph of the letter is book-ended by the same idea. I'm going to read the first and last line of this paragraph so that you can see the frame of this idea. Here's the first line, quote, do not laugh, and the last line, quote, absurd. This next motivation, as you can see, Tolkien was rather vulnerable about. Languages, no problem. Lack of mythical stories, I can feel that. No English myth, I'll create one. Each of these previous motivations, Tolkien took seriously. What is this fourth motivation, stemming from his desire to create an English myth? It is this, quote, Once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogenic to the level of romantic fairy story, which I could dedicate simply to England, to my country. Tolkien knows what he's doing when he evokes that classic opener to children's tales and fairy stories, Once Upon a Time. Yet we also see the desires of a youthful heart. Create a legend. A legend that is vast enough to explore the creation of the world and the ordering of the heavens, and yet is also intimate enough to move its readers' hearts and minds with romance. But how to achieve such a lofty goal? What kind of legend could do that? In Tolkien's words, quote, it should possess the tone and quality that I desired, somewhat cool and clear, while possessing, if I could achieve it, the fair, elusive beauty that some call Celtic. He goes on, I know it's long, but it's critical to understanding The Lord of the Rings, quote, it should be high, purged of the gross, and fit for the more adult mind of a land long now steeped in poetry. Hmm, there's another reason why Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit have so many songs. Tolkien was attempting to provide an origin for England's poetry. What does he mean by high and purged of the gross? Tolkien's aspirations were to create a legend that had a sense of nobility and elevated themes. He aimed to craft a story that had a certain grandeur, addressing significant and timeless themes that resonate with readers on a deep and meaningful level. Additionally, Tolkien's works often incorporate strong moral and ethical elements. They explore concepts like heroism, self-sacrifice, friendship, the nature of evil, and the struggle between good and evil. These elements contribute to the high nature of his stories, as they deal with important and enduring questions of human existence. Purged of the Gross suggests that Tolkien wanted his works to be free from elements that could be considered vulgar or base. His writing tends to avoid explicit or gratuitous content, even through its many battle scenes, focusing instead on storytelling that is high. Ironically, I know some people are turned away by this, saying that The Lord of the Rings is too wholesome for them to enjoy it. Also, Tolkien's works often delve into deep and profound themes related to mythology, spirituality, and the human condition. This intellectual depth, as opposed to the shallowness or superficiality, can be seen as purging the stories of the gross, or less weightier matters. This desire to be high and purged of the gross sets Tolkien apart into a literary league of his own. He aimed to create a mythology and a body of work that was not only artistically rich and engaging, but also spiritually and morally profound. He sought to contribute to the world of literature by crafting a narrative that would stand the test of time, and be celebrated for its enduring qualities, free from the elements that might detract from its loftier, more noble aspects. This key aspect of the Legendarium has been a major criticism of the first season of Amazon's Rings of Power. Many have said that the show has catered too much to the whims and fads of our age that fall below the noble aspirations that Tolkien had. I agree with these criticisms, that Rings of Power strayed too far from the nobility of Tolkien's tales, And I think it will struggle to stand the test of time. But just creating the legend wasn't enough. He wanted to give it away, to dedicate it to his country. His country that had shipped him and his sons out to war. His country that was the tip of scientific discovery and advancement. A country of shepherds turned to world rulers. This legend wasn't Tolkien's. He didn't possess it like Gollum coveting the one ring. He wanted to dedicate it. England. To this end, he would leave some of the legend open and unexplored. I would draw some of the great tales in fullness, and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. The cycles should be linked to a majestic whole, and yet leave scope for other minds and hands, wielding in paint and music and drama. I find this idea beautiful and aspirational. Taken in its entirety, the legendarium would be a cohesive, majestic collection, but others could or would be inspired to fill in the gaps in various art forms, paint, music, drama, perhaps even cinema. In the decades since it was published, The Lord of the Rings has inspired hundreds, if not thousands, of art pieces. I'm sure every listener to this show has some piece of art in some form that is inspired from Tolkien's works. And even as I write this podcast, I am listening to the Rings of Power soundtrack by Bear McCleary, and it is so inspirational for me. I would even venture to say that many of our fantasy and fairy stories today, like Star Wars, Marvel, Game of Thrones, Mistborn, Harry Potter, and more, may not exist without Tolkien. A bold claim, I know, but Tolkien invented the genre, codified the story, and did it better than anyone before or since. While I'm not sure all the cycles have been linked into one majestic whole, it is without a doubt that other minds and hands have responded to the call to add their own tale to the legend. But remember the framing of this paragraph? Do not laugh, absurd. Tolkien recognized that this was a daunting goal, likely unachievable. Yet he tried anyway. Like Frodo, who didn't know the way to Mordor, Tolkien didn't know if his dream could become a reality. While Tolkien may have doubted, I stand in awe and appreciation at the rich legend he crafted. I find truths of the human experience around every corner of Middle-earth. The tales enchant me. Who is not inspired by Little Bilbo marching into the Dragon's Lair? Who is not moved by Sam carrying his master and friend up the slopes of Mount Doom? Who can stand in defiance against King Elisar and not be moved by his integrity, nobility, mercy, and strength? Who isn't moved to pity when Gollum crumbles in desperation? Who doesn't find hope as the eagles appear on the horizon? Who doesn't shudder in fear as Morgoth the Dark Lord emerges from his dark and evil stronghold to answer the challenge of a single elven king alone and far from his army. Who doesn't weep with Luthien the Elf maiden as she sings over the seemingly lifeless body of Beren the Mortal after crumbling the tower of Sauron the Deceiver? My mind is enchanted, my heart is moved, my spirit is refreshed. This is the myth that Tolkien gifted us. My fellow wanderers, We are barely two pages into this 13-page letter. I told you it wasn't as brief as Tolkien claimed it was. Join me in the next episode as we dive deep on how Tolkien started to bring these tales together. Thank you for Wandering Middle-Earth with me, today. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at More of the Rings podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember: not all those who wander are lost.
1: Save big on brunch for mom—all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty-nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty-nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Raise your hand if this has happened to you today. You're
0: in the middle of work, you're knocking things off the to do list, getting stuff done, and your kid asks you to play. Do you drop everything? Do you ask them to wait a minute? What do you do? If you're like me, you don't always say yes right away. The kid moves on, you get busy, and you forget to circle back around and play. An opportunity to make a memory has been lost, and the Dad Guild settles in. Not so anymore. I've developed a simple game that will enable you to take those small moments and have fun. It's called Dad's Adventure Dice Digital Edition. My five-year-old daughter asks me nearly every day, can we do Dad Adventure Dice? What follows are some quick rolls of the dice that lead to a fun activity with an intriguing twist. Within five or ten minutes, we've had a lot of fun, shared a lot of laughter, and made a memory together. Download your own Dad's Adventure Dice today. Visit store.adventures.dad to download yours. That's store.adventure.dad to download Dad's Adventure Dice.